The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. In business, service is everything. Cintas delivers what you need to better serve your customers. Whether it's freshly laundered work apparel for almost any job imaginable, tested and inspected fire protection systems, first aid and safety supplies, on-site AED training, or mops and restroom products stocked and ready when you need them. Better work days happen together. So visit Cintas.com. Oh, I'm ready! And get ready for the workday buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello, and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and in this month's edition, I'm ably assisted by our staff writer, Rob Attar. Hi, Rob. Hello, Dave. Now, Rob, this month we've got something of an aviation theme in the podcast, haven't we? Yep, we certainly do, Dave. We've got James May, who you may well know from Top Gear, who's going to be talking about the Wright brothers, who were his choice for History Hero this month. Sounds good. Looking forward to hearing from him. And then you've been talking to Anthony Cumming as well, haven't you? Yes, we have. And again, it's another guy who's going to be featured in the magazine. And he's talking about the role of the RAF in the Battle of Britain. And quite a contentious argument that he's going to make is that winning the Battle of Britain was not actually that important to the victory over the Nazis, but also it wasn't even true. We didn't actually win the battle. Interesting. Sounds like Anthony's got some fascinating things to say. But I'm sure his feature in the magazine will get people talking as well. And indeed, so will our cover feature, which highlights the untold story of how close Britain came to not having the Spitfire ready for the Battle of Britain. And that's going to be our first interview this month. I've been talking to the author of that feature, Leo McKinstry, about the Spitfire's near miss on its finest hour. Now, you can read about all these things that we're talking about in the podcast in this month's issue of BBC History magazine, which you can buy in all good news agents in the UK and in borders in the US. The mag is monthly and goes on sale on the last Tuesday of the month for £3.60, and you can save money in a trip to the shops by subscribing. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just £16.20 every six issues, and that's a saving of 25% on the cover price. You order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine, and you need to quote pod07. Alternatively, you can call our hotline on 0844-844-0250. So that's that out of the way, and let's get on with the interviews. Firstly, we'll go over to hear what Leo McKinstry can tell us about the Spitfire. So, Leo, can you tell me just how close do you think did the Spitfire come to missing its finest hour in the Battle of Britain? Well, uh, we all rightly think of the Spitfire as the plane that helped to win the Battle of Britain and helped to save Britain in the war. It was almost as much an icon of British resolution as Winston Churchill's cigar. 
But what is truly remarkable that I found when I was researching this book, uh, looking through the archives of the Air Ministry and the Air Staff, is to see how little official faith there was in the Spitfire in the build-up to war and in the first year of the war. In the government and the RAF in 1939, there were a host of senior figures who were far more favorable to other fighters, such as the Westland Whirlwind, which is a twin-engine plane, the bulky Bristol Bow fighter, and the large Hawker Tornado, which eventually became the famous Typhoon. Uh, there was far more support for them than for the Spitfire, and there was no sense that... Uh, the plane that became so famous was a winner. In fact, uh, throughout much of 39, there were plans within the Air Ministry to tell the Supermarine Company, which built the Spitfire at Southampton, to tell Supermarine to use their output for overseas sales. So it's quite incredible to actually, the Spitfire was seen as an export earner rather than the linchpin of the RAF. And there, it was planned that uh, Supermarine would gradually phase out Spitfire production through 1940 to be replaced by the Bowfighter or the Whirlwind. I just want to quote from one letter which displays this total lack of faith within the government. It's from Sir Wilfred Freeman, one of the senior figures in the RAF, one of their chief planners. And in January 1940, he wrote to one of his colleagues explaining that problems with the development of the Hawko tornado meant that the Spitfire would have to remain in production and in service in the RAF. And Freeman wrote, I realize that the Spitfire will not be as welcome as the tornado but our fighter aeroplane of an economic sort will surely be useful for the Allies and for operations on front other than the Western Front. That's, that's Freeman's view, a fighter of an economic sort, and that was said in January 1940, just uh, a few months before the Battle of Britain. So it does show the extraordinary lack of faith in the plane. That, that is very surprising, yeah. So what was it to, that caused the problem? Was it the lack of government interest in the plane, or was it what, Supermarine's inability sure. to build well, it? That, that, that's partly it. Well, I think there were two, two big reasons. The first was strategic. Before 1940, uh, most of the air ministry planners hadn't recognised how the war in, the Western, in Western Europe would unfold. They didn't see that France would fall so quickly, so they didn't believe that the Luftwaffe could operate from the northern French coast. This in turn meant that German fighters wouldn't have the range to reach Britain. So the real job, they thought, of RAF Fighter Command would be to destroy our German bombers. And in these circumstances, firepower was far more important than the speed or maneuverability, which were the great assets of the Spitfire. But sadly, the Spitfire, certainly in 1940, didn't have the same firepower as was envisioned for other planes. And so uh, it didn't fit so much into their strategic planning about how to take on the bomber, and they didn't envisage there would be the kind of dogfights that eventually became so common in the Battle of Britain. The second point which you alluded to was uh, the huge production difficulties of the Spitfire. This was for two reasons. First of all, the Supermarine Company in Southampton uh, was a very small outfit, uh, and it, previously it had mainly built seaplanes, and it just didn't have the capacity for building huge orders that the, the RAF needed and had to sub subcontract a lot of its work, which caused a lot of chaos in the drawings and the delivery of parts. And also the plane itself, designed by the great Reginald Mitchell, Supermarine's chief designer, it was totally revolutionary, and that created a lot of technical problems for the actual building of the pl plane, particularly the famous elliptical wing uh, which had two main spars, and it was a very complex piece of precision engineering and way in advance of its time, which made it very difficult for Supermarine. 
And though the Spitfire had first flown in March 1936, that's when the prototype took off and Supermarine had promised that uh, the first deliveries would start in uh, September 1937, by mid-1938 not a single plane had been delivered into RAF service and the ministry were becoming extremely disillusioned. And indeed there was such a deep political crisis over the plane that the Secretary of State for Air and Viscount Swindon actually had to resign in May 1938 over this political crisis partly engendered by the failure to deliver the Spitfire. The greatest mess of all in production uh, which shows how difficult it was to build a Spitfire was uh, over a huge plant at Castle Bromwich in Birmingham which uh, in 1938 the government planned that would build over a thousand Spitfires by the end of 1940. Sadly for the RAF, not a single plane had emerged from Castle Bromwich uh, by March 1940. Uh, again, there were tremendous technical difficulties with building the Spitfire with an untrained workforce. There was all, the Castle Bromwich plant in Birmingham was managed by a guy called Lord Nuffield, who was the founder of the Morris Cars Empire. And though he knew a lot about building cars, he knew nothing about building aeroplanes, and the plant was grossly mismanaged. And the government was utterly fed up with Castle Bromwich and the whole Spitfire program uh, by... 1940. Luckily, things were turned round rapidly uh, with the threat of the Battle of Britain and the fall of France, and a more dynamic government came in under Winston Churchill, and Lord Beaverbrook, as Minister for Aircraft Production, turned round uh, Castle Bromwich and massively increased Spitfire production. But it was a close-run thing, and uh, I think the Battle of Britain would have been won more easily if we'd had more Spitfires. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because this idea of a government not believing in the Spitfires and the Spitfires not being produced properly before the Battle of Britain doesn't sit very comfortably with our idea of the Battle of Britain, of, of, with all these Spitfires coming out and, and saving the day. Why haven't we heard this story before of, the, of this sort well, of government uh, lack of interest? It's a great question, and it fascinated me when I was first commissioned to write this book. My publisher, I didn't know this sort of hidden aspect to the Spitfire story. You know, I was very moved by the romantic tale of the Spitfire and its glorious role in the Battle of Britain and the war. And I, I wasn't aware of all this background because, as you said, uh, it's never really been written about before. And I think partly it doesn't fit easily with uh, the great romantic myths of the war. And partly most books on the Spitfire literature have concentrated very much on the combat record and the technical and engineering aspects of the plane. And partly because I, I've done a lot of writing about politics before, I was very interested in the political background and the strategic arguments within the air ministry in the 1930s. So I was going into the air ministry and air staff archives to look for this sort of background. And uh, this wealth of papers was there that I, I don't think many people have looked at before, particularly the grisly Castle Bromwich saga, which was such a disaster for Spitfire production. But uh, there's no doubt that up to the early 1940, the, the Spitfire wasn't seen as the winner, and it was really the battle over Dunkirk that proved the great qualities of the plane, uh, its speed, its maneuverability, its swiftness in the turn, and its resilience. And, and it proved over Dunkirk that it was a real match for the deadly German fighter, the Messerschmitt 109, and I think that's when the Air Ministry really began to w wake up to what a great plane it had. If I can just quote from uh, Jeffrey Quill, who's the most famous, perhaps, of all Spitfire test pilots, and he, his uh, brilliant understanding of the plane played a crucial role in its development. And it was Jeffrey Quill, uh, who'd been working with Supermarines since 1936, he said, It was at Dunkirk that the superior performance of the Spitfire and speed, rate of climb, and maneuverability clearly demonstrated its true worth. This had a profound effect upon the attitudes of fighter command and the air ministry. It's probably fair to say that it was the operation at Dunkirk which established the Spitfire as the number one fighter in the RAF. 
and resulted in decisions to produce as many as possible as fast as possible. So Dunkirk was the real turning point, and then only a few weeks after Dunkirk, uh, you get into the German attacks on Britain, culminating in the Battle of Britain, where it was the Spitfire that really proved uh, it was the fighter to defend Britain. So it was only really when the when the nature of the aerial battle became apparent over yeah. Dunkirk that, that the government really began to think this, exactly. this is the plane I mean, we need to have. Before then, there had just been a few skirmishes, and uh, we'd been through the phony war from August 1939 up to May 1940, and the Spitfire had just taken down a few German bombers. But it, it was in that intensity of combat over Dunkirk, and then subsequently in the daily battles over Kent and Sussex and the southern English coast that uh, completely transformed the image of the plane and transformed attitudes within the government. Yeah, so, so it was in, in those months running up to the Battle of Britain that the government became convinced. But what about the pilots then? So what did they think of the plane? Were they always convinced that this well, was the they, plane? Well, that, that's a great point. Yeah, they were right from uh, when the Spitfire first uh, flew in 1936. The pilots adored it. Uh, they, I don't think there can ever have been a plane in history that was more loved by its pilots. Uh, they just uh, adored everything about it, both its physical beauty and its wonderful uh, controls and it, it, its speed. And uh, it, we should remember that when the Spitfire came in in 1936, when the prototype first flew, the RAF was still basically in the fabric-covered biplane era, hmm. uh, with planes rarely reaching above 200 miles an hour. Suddenly you have this plane that is going at over 350 miles an hour. It was a complete revolution. And... Uh, Pilots naturally, you know, most of them dynamic, daring young men, they were just thrilled with it. Spitfire, Portrait of a Legend by Leo McKinstry is published by John Murray. And now we're going to talk to Anthony Cumming. Rob's been interviewing him about what the RAF really did in the Battle of Britain. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. In the article, you claim that the Royal Navy and not the RAF was the key factor in preventing Operation Sea Lion. So do you believe that even if the RAF had been defeated, the invasion wouldn't have taken place? 
I think if the invasion had taken place, it would have been pretty well doomed from the start. And I don't really think, at least in the initial stages of Operation Sea Lion, aircraft could have played much of a part, because the German army demanded a dawn attack, uh, and this meant the channel crossing had to go at night, and of course there's no way that RAF bombers could bomb accurately at night. Now, of course, at dawn, troops would have started unloading from the uh, landing craft and the equipment from the steamers, except by then, the night fighting flotillas from Plymouth, uh, Portsmouth, and the Nore would have been mixed up with the invasion barges, and I think the intervention of aircraft would still have been very limited. But, um, I mean, let's say the Luftwaffe gets a chance at a later stage of the operation, and I think, really, we have to bear in mind they have no torpedo bombers worthy of the name. Uh, they have no bombs big enough to damage a capital ship. And until 1941, they've hardly any uh, specialist anti-shipping bombs. And really, the only bomber with enough accuracy to um, sink something like a destroyer is the Junkers 87 Stuka, which only makes up about uh, a quarter of the German bomber force. You know, some people think that because the Navy was hammered at the Battle of Crete in 1941, then the Navy would have been hammered in 1940, but the situation was much different then. I mean, at Crete, British warships were low on anti-aircraft ammunition, and the German Air Force had better bombs, more experience, and more anti-maritime training than before. Uh, warships were also encumbered with evacuating troops. Uh, meaning their bomb-dodging capabilities were somewhat inhibited. I think if Crete proves anything, it shows how resilient naval morale was under extreme pressure. Now, of course, I also realise that many German military figures stress the importance of air power rather than naval power. But, you see, the thing is, if you read the records of the uh, German naval staff, uh, the Führer conferences with uh, Hitler and, and the German admirals, you'll find, in fact, that the German Navy is very reluctant to undertake this operation. They're, they're frightened of the Royal Navy because the Navy outnumbers the Kriegsmarine as something like 10 to 1 in warships. They don't actually want to go ahead with the operation. So they've got to find an excuse for not proceeding, if you see what I mean. So, you know, as time goes on, they're constantly saying things like, well, you know, the, the Luftwaffe has done well, but, you know, we, we're still seeing aircraft in, in, in the channel interfering with their mine-laying operations. We still haven't got air superiority yet. The funny thing is, of course, between 24th of August and 6th of September, they had perhaps not air supremacy, but over the invasion areas, they actually had superiority. And um, if air power was as important as is usually claimed, they could have gone ahead then. So you, you think the reason why they didn't go ahead with Operation Sea Lion was because of the fear of the British Navy? That's right. And, and quite honestly, uh, Hitler couldn't afford a disaster in the Channel. Thousands of troops could have been drowned. Or I think that's what could well have happened, is that the first wave might have got ashore. And then they would have been cut off by um, either the Royal Naval local flotillas, or the home fleet would steam down from Rossite, come through the Dover Straits, and cut off the uh, logistical supply lines, meaning that uh, thousands of German troops would then have been in a position where they would have had to have surrendered. So in that case, why did um, the Germans launch the Battle of Britain, if that wouldn't have affected the outcome of Operation Sea Lion? I think, to begin with, in fact, probably, uh, I don't really think Hitler was that gung-ho about Operation Sea Lion at any stage. But he had to maintain 
pressure on the British people to come to some kind of accommodation. So the air campaign is part of that. It's a way of putting pressure on the British people. And so if if the RAF was not the key factor in the defence of Britain, why do you think we still have this legend of the few who saved the country in 1940? It was very strongly established in the war. I think there's a very strong psychological dimension here. It was important for home consumption, and I think it was perhaps in some respects even more important for American consumption because we were completely dependent on American logistical support at this particular time. The the Minister of Information, various other propaganda agencies made great efforts to sell the pilot as a hero and a saviour, not only of Britain, but also of the whole of civilization, including America. It just happens to chime in with certain American cultural values. It's to do... I think subconsciously it's to do with the image of the Wild West hero. I think it's probably no coincidence that uh, around about 1940 there there were a great number of Wild West movies shown in the cinema. Roy Rogers was very popular at this particular time, Hopalong Cassidy, and they kind of epitomised American values of um, self-reliance, fearlessness, rugged independence. And I think that was the sort of image the Ministry of, of Information wanted to try and put over in, in, in America. And I think it was very successful. I mean, Lord Halifax sent a memo to the Ministry of, Ministry of Information saying, whatever you can do to show uh, you know, the value of, of the Royal Air Force as an organisation will, will, will be very useful in terms of getting American public opinion on their side. And of course it was quite difficult trying to get American public opinion on their side because many Americans were thinking, well, why should we help Britain? Because Britain will probably surrender soon anyway, and we need all this war material for our own defence. You know, they're also worried about Japanese imperialism at the time. So uh, I think you've got to look a bit more widely on this particular theme. But I I think it's it's these psychological and propaganda aspects. I I think that's the important contribution that uh, the Royal Air Force made. A a major theme of your article that you wrote in the November edition is the fact that the RAF wasn't really prepared for the Battle of Britain. No, I don't think it was, uh, despite the fact that a lot of money had actually been spent on on air power during the 30s because it was seen as the way ahead. And I think this uh, manifests itself in several different ways, and training is one of them. But I I appreciate, of course, that there was a rapid expansion of uh, training in the years before uh, the Second World War, and the Navy suffered from very similar problems. But, you know, it takes takes a long time for, for resources to really show a return you know there wasn't time for a a systematic planned expansion and i think there's a lot of muddling through going on so if the raf fighter command wasn't really prepared for the battle of britain then um how come they were victorious in the end well (laughs) were they victorious um they survived it's true but uh in, in my opinion um the the Luftwaffe didn't actually lose the battle. In fact, they uh, conducted a very clever campaign. Now, it's true, of course, that many people would say that it wasn't sufficiently focused and they hopped around from uh, one type of target to another. And I think there is some truth in that, but I think we have to remember, of course, this was very much an experimental conflict. There hadn't really been this sort of operation carried out before. I mean, if you exclude the uh, World War I Gotha bombing raids on on London in the First World War, but this was a much, much bigger type of affair. In fact, the, uh, the Luftwaffe maintained the initiative at every stage, 
and as I say, between 24th of August and 6th of September, they'd actually got the upper hand over the invasion areas, and uh, the RAF wasn't able to uh, fill the gaps in its line with uh, with suitable, well-trained replacements. The Germans had their problems as well, but uh, I mean, even uh, Air Marshal Downing at the end of the, the battle actually writes that uh, you know, the Luftwaffe were you know, very flexible in their use of training and that they conducted the operations very well. And at the, at the end of the battle, he's saying that most fighter squadrons are only fit for operating against unescorted bombers. He's saying that because the Air Ministry's publication, The Battle of Britain, actually makes the assertion that the fighter squadrons of the RAF were stronger at the end of the battle than they were at the beginning. He's saying, well, no, 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 that's all wrong. You know, we're in, a, we're in a very desperate state. Thanks, Rob. Now, finally, it's over to James May to tell us why his history heroes are the Wright brothers. So, James, why have you selected the Wright brothers as your history heroes? Um, well, partly because I'm so interested in aeroplanes and the history of aviation, but partly because I think they were a remarkable couple of brothers, and there was their sister involved in it as well, and their father, who was a preacher. It was a very interesting and slightly old family. But the level of dedication that they applied to a subject that had been baffling people for a very long time um, and they were really just bicycle makers from a small, uh, small bicycle shop in rural America. And they, they worked out something that people from the Smithsonian Institute couldn't. They were sort of academic, very, very learned people. But they were also very hands-on, practical, men-in-shed type of people who, who tried things out and made things and, you know, tried to see if they could make them work. So that combination is unusual, but also the amount of time they put into it is unusual because they just did it day and night. Does this perhaps apply to a lot of people of genius? There is certainly a certain element of of the man in the shed thing. Certainly with with the defining inventions of the last 100 to 150 years, things like televisions, bicycles, aeroplanes, the motor car, well, even going back to things like the hot air balloon, a lot of that was done by one or maybe a handful of people usually in some rudimentary shed or workshop-type building, obviously uh, often not with a great deal of funding, often unrecognised, often misunderstood, but that seems to be where the great things come from, like Robert Goddard's pioneering work in rocketry. You know, most people just thought he was mad and that it didn't work and that a rocket wouldn't work in space. Even the newspapers were saying that, but he just, you know, carried on in his shed until eventually he got the Guggenheims to sponsor him and they gave him some money, then he was able to go off to uh, Roswell and build some proper rockets. That seems to be the spirit of inventiveness in that era. I don't know if it's true now, because when we're looking at things like microelectronics or laser surgery or stuff at a sort of atomic level, then I think that needs big research institutions, a lot of money, a lot of very, very formally qualified people. But I don't think that was so true of the significant material inventions of the past. I think they were the work of artisans. How different do you think the history of air travel would have been without the Wright brothers? Possibly not that different, because... Um, once the Wright brothers had flown, they, I mean, they kept it secret for quite a few years and they didn't really advertise their achievements. They were very worried that people would steal them and they, they flew around uh, locally in Dayton and the locals saw them and knew they had this flying machine, but they didn't really publicize it to the world. Once they'd gone over to France and demonstrated it, which was in 19, was it 1907 or 8, then the French were very, very enthusiastic about aviation and they took it up and very, very quickly, a lot of the Wright's techniques and thinking were outmoded. And the French, you know, established a better system of controls within the cockpit. I mean, the, the Wright's got the control surface thinking right. 
but the French got the actual control levers, if you like. They got that right. And they did great things with aero engines. And, you know, within another year or so, they had Blerio's monoplane with its Anzani engine. So I suppose if the Wrights hadn't come along, maybe all that would have happened anyway. But then again, if the Wrights hadn't been there, there wouldn't have been the spur and the inspiration. Did the Wrights have to overcome any tough challenges in their lives? Well, as they seem to keep themselves to themselves a lot of the time, I don't think that they they had that problem that a lot of pioneers do of being sort of reviled by their contemporaries and their peers and being dismissed as nutcases because I don't think they spent any time with people who would have dismissed them as nutcases. They corresponded with people like um, Octave Knut from the Smithsonian and Samuel Langley and so on. So, you know, they, they were within the pioneering aviation community, but all the people they dealt with thought it was possible as well, so they'd have been fine on that score. I suppose that they had some family problems such as um, the old bishop, right? He was effectively uh, slandered, I think, in some, something to do with the church. He tried to show that there was corruption in the church, and the church closed ranks and tried to essentially smear his name. So Wilbur Wright, who had a very, very sharp legal mind, had to spend a great deal of time helping his father with that and helping to defend him. What do you see as their negative qualities? Well, they were strangely puritanical and secretive about what they'd done, and they were very neurotic about people stealing the idea. And it does seem that once once it was established that they'd made the flying machine, they then became involved in quite a few wrangles over the rights to build them, over this you know, dispute with Glenn Curtis about aeroplane control and whether or not he owed them a royalty for anything that he built, all that sort of thing. They, it seems they did become, from from being quite puritanical, they seemed to become quite sort of avaricious almost. And they became very, very jealous of their invention. One of your latest ventures was James May's 20th Century, which looked at the history of technology. Did your love for the Wright brothers inspire this series? Well, yes. We, I mean, we did talk about the Wright brothers, and it's, it's quite difficult to include it because those programmes are very short. They're only half an hour, and they're designed to sort of catch the light, as we are always putting it at the BBC. Um, and really, it's also it's an open university program it's 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 really designed as an inspiration to people to then go and do the proper courses and and all the rest of it we we can't hope to cover the subject properly in half an hour um but we did talk about the wright brothers about how their first flight could i think take place in the shadow of a boeing 737 it was only 125 feet their flight but what we were really needing wanting to make the point was about air travel shrinking the world so drastically and so suddenly and uh were the wright brothers some of the people most responsible for shrinking the world I think so, yes. I mean, not just the rights. There were a lot of other people involved and a lot of other people that came after them that did brilliant things, like, I mean, obviously, Blerio and Alcock and Brown flying the Atlantic, and then people like the Douglas Aeroplane Company for making more reliable metal-winged airliners and all the rest of it. But the, but the rights is where that fundamental issue of can an aeroplane be made into a reliable flying machine? They established that it could, so that is the starting point. Having completed this series, do you think that you will be doing more history shows in the future? Well, they have said they would like another one next year with a sort of technological bent. We haven't decided what it is yet, but we're toying around with ideas to do with flight, aviation, early weaponry, canal systems, buildings, all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's, it's an endless subject, and you can go ever deeper into it and never get to the bottom of it. So I'm sure we can come up with something quite interesting. James May's 20th Century by James May and Phil Dolling is published by Hodder and Southam. So that's it. Hope you've enjoyed this month's BBC History Magazine podcast. Do pick up a copy of the magazine if you want to find out more. And of course, do listen again next month for more on the latest happenings in the history world.